Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, Cato Institute. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research here at Cato, and it's uh, my great privilege to welcome you here to a forum on the new book by Timothy Ferris, The Science of Liberty, Democracy, Reason, and the Laws of Nature. Copies available outside for purchase. Uh, <clears throat> as you might be able to guess from the title and subtitle, uh, something about the book's thesis, but I'll give you a little better hint uh, from a passage from the book's opening pages, and I quote, the democratic revolution of the 18th century was sparked, caused, is perhaps not too strong a word, by the scientific revolution, and science continues to empower political freedom today. It's not just that scientific creativity has produced technological improvements, which in turn have enhanced the prosperity and security of the scientific nations, although that is part of the story but that the freedoms protected by liberal democracies are essential to facilitating scientific inquiry and that democracy itself is an experimental system without which neither science nor liberty can flourish. That a book with such a thesis can be written and that its argument can be so generally persuasive is evidence for the Russian saying that the only thing more unpredictable than the future is the past. Because when I was growing up in the 1960s, the received wisdom was that the relationship between science and human freedom was, well, adversarial, that the progress of science went hand in hand with the eclipse of freedom. After all, this was the space age, which in the early going, uh, at least, was dominated by Soviet communism. And while America, representing the free world, uh, eventually came on strong, it didn't help that our top rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, uh, got his start making missiles for Hitler in a slave labor factory. It was also the computer age, uh, but the connotation was something completely different back then, as our image of computers was of those massive IBM mainframes that were both symbolers, symbols and enablers of centralized power. In psychology, it was the heyday of behaviorism, and under its sway... <laughs> The general sense was that a society organized along scientific lines was one in which people were manipulated by white-coated technocrats like so many lab rats in a maze. It was horror at this prospect that motivated the great dystopian novel and movie of that time, A Clockwork Orange, that showed how technological society was reducing human beings to mere mechanism and that the only apparent freedom lay in mindless violence. My how things have changed. And for the better, the Soviet Union has collapsed, and with it the pretense of so-called scientific socialism. Behaviorism was overthrown by the cognitive revolution in psychology, and with it went the idea that human beings were nothing but glorified wind-up toys. The space age has become a museum piece that we all love taking our kids uh, to see down at the mall, uh, but that's about it. And the current computer age is all about decentralization and liberation. So in our current setting, it's much easier to see the truth of the basic story that Timothy Ferris seeks to tell, that the scientific and liberal democratic revolutions were deeply intertwined and indeed involved overlapping casts of characters, that, dis that the discovery process of science, with its decentralized competition of theories directed by the feedback of experimental results, had its analog in both aspects of liberal democracy. First, the liberal side, with what F.A. Hayek called the discovery process of the marketplace with decentralized competition of investments directed by the feedback of profit and loss. 
And second, the democratic side with the discovery process of politics, with decentralized competition amongst bottom-up political coalitions directed by the feedback of elections. And thus, there are good reasons for concluding that all three of these processes, which share common origins and deep resemblances in character, are all part of a larger common phenomenon that we know as the free society. Uh, to develop this thesis further, uh, we have uh, the author, Timothy Ferris, who has uh, made for himself a glittering reputation as a best-selling and award-winning science writer. Uh, his previous books include Seeing in the Dark, uh, The Mind's Sky, both of which were named New York Times Best Books of the Year, and The Whole Shebang, which was listed by American Scientist as one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. Uh, he's taught in five disciplines at four different universities. He's an emeritus professor at uh, University of California at Berkeley and a former editor of Rolling Stone. He's uh, written articles and essays all over the place, including New Yorker, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, Scientific American. Uh, and he's uh, made three primetime PBS television specials, The Creation of the Universe, Life Beyond Earth, and Seeing in the Dark. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Timothy Ferris. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to attempt to use a PowerPoint presentation. This is the technology you may recall uh, was um, blamed in part by an official government report on uh, destroying the culture of excellence at NASA. Um, and so let me, uh, and also, also this is a talk that's designed to take 45 minutes. I'm going to do it in 20, so let me speed quickly through. My thesis is that there is a symbiotic relationship between science and uh, liberalism. Let me um, quickly define my terms. By science, I mean what, what sometimes is called modern science, uh, which is to say the entire social institution of um, a scientific establishment that has professional scientists, university departments, laboratories, refereed journals, scientific conferences, and all the rest of it. In the book, I'm not concerned with how science originated or why it happened to originate, when and where it did. I think any tool-making species that keeps tool-making to a certain critical point will inevitably develop science, but that's not part of the argument here today. What I do want to avoid is going back and cherry-picking the occasional scholar who did something that today looks scientific um, and attributing great scientific achievements to that time and place. Uh, that's interesting historically, but it's not very helpful when you're looking at the interaction of science and, and democracies today. There's never been in history anything like the scientific establishment we have today. And it does have a method, despite the efforts of hundreds of scholars to claim otherwise. Uh, and the essence of this method is a kind of feedback loop. You have an idea, and instead of just testing it either by its internal logic or uh, by testing it against other competing ideas, which Aristotle had identified as the only two ways to uh, evaluate an idea before science, you conduct an experiment. And based on, and that's where the, the tools come in, you do have to have a technology. And then based on the experiment, you might affirm, revise, or deny the hypothesis. That really is how science works, as far as I can tell, in 40 years of covering it even though uh, many people seem to think otherwise. 
Now, I'll quickly give you an example. Paul Dirac in 1928 writes an equation that accurately describes the behavior of the electron in every respect. It's a beautiful piece of work, but it implies that there ought to be an anti-electron, something no one had ever heard of. Dirac is embarrassed by the prediction, uh, tries to make as little of it as possible. Therefore, Carl Anderson, when he discovers the antimatter component, a counterpart of the electron, doesn't even know that the prediction was in Dirac's uh, paper of just a few years earlier. Consequently, the uh, prediction is affirmed. Um, now, by liberalism, I have in mind classical, what is sometimes called classical liberalism. In my opinion, liberalism, like science, is not a term that benefits from modifiers. Uh, I don't think there's any need to talk about modern science or classical liberalism. To me, liberalism is just liberalism. It's enshrined in the Bill of Rights and so forth. Um, and so when I talk about it, that's what, uh, what I mean. Now, one reason I think that Americans have had problems figuring out uh, where various opinions like liberalism might lie on the political spectrum is that for some reason we have a tradition of looking at politics in terms of a one-dimensional uh, left-to-right spectrum. Uh, in science, you can't, you know, one dimension, it's sort of like the questions that involve favorites, you know, like what's your favorite such and such means take this entire field and reduce it to one dimension and then tell me what lies on one end of it. Uh, who's the greatest athlete in the world? That's a one-dimensional analysis. You can't get a satisfactory answer because it's not enough dimensions. This happens all the time. This, for instance, is a one-dimensional version of a photograph. If you just add a dimension, it looks like that. So in science, it's quite common to take problems and say, maybe the confusion here is that we don't have enough dimensions. Let's just add one. And often, it'll, in science, you can go to 10, 24 dimensions. In mathematics, they go to 10,000 or more dimensions. Uh, here, I would just revive the old idea that it's better to look at politics in two dimensions. Hayek uh, had a diagram like this. There are many of them now on the internet. The details of the diagram don't matter. This one opposes progressive conservative and liberal totalitarian. You might want to construct one for yourself. Uh, I just think you're much better off starting with two dimensions than one in trying to understand political orientations. Now, liberalism does have in common with science that, uh, at least in terms of liberal democracy, one constructs experiments. Um, they are inherent to the system. They, every election is an experiment. Every act of legislation is an experiment. Um, this isn't the way we talk about it so much now, but the founders did talk uh, in experimental terms. Jefferson's second inaugural uh, is one of the many documents using the term experiment overtly to talk about uh, American independence. And he points out that particularly with regard to freedom of speech, seldom has anyone been as pilloried as I've been for four years by the press, and yet not only are the administration survived, we even got reelected. It was an experimental process. To make the loop work in scientific terms, you need to analyze the results, and we haven't been always so good at that in the liberal democracies. There's a tendency to do the first two steps and leave a lot of programs that aren't working uh, still around. And there has been effort in government on various levels to improve this, this third step. The U.S. Department of Education, for instance, has been spending increasing amounts of money to evaluate what works and what doesn't work. Science and, and, and uh, liberalism are symbiotic, I would say, in that both are authoritarian, self-correcting, powerful social activities that maximize, that require maximizing intellectual resources. That is, they both put uh, a stress on universal public education, which has been a principle of um, liberalism from the beginning. <clears throat> 
Now, I argue historically that science incited the Enlightenment, and there's some various dates here that if we had more time I would go into with you, but I'll spare you this time. I would just like to note the amusing fact that newspapers essentially began in large measure to report the, the earliest scientific discoveries, particularly Galileo's observations. Coffee was also coming into Europe from uh, Turkey, and the result was a combination of newspapers and coffee houses which proved seditious in every jurisdiction in which they arose. Every leader from Cairo to London sought to suppress coffee houses because once you get people starting to drink coffee, read the papers and talk, they discover that it's not just them that thinks the government is off base. Uh, uh, and all those, all those efforts failed, fortunately. This combination of science and liberalism has quite a number of attainments. Uh, in the book, I try to boil down some of them to uh, what I think are fairly universal values. What can everyone agree it's good for people to, to have, like health, wealth, and happiness? In terms of health, we, uh, the, thanks to uh, uh, science and free enterprise and such, the, the um, average expectation of a baby born in the world today is more than twice what it was in 1800. Food production is up 52% per person despite the increase in population just uh, since uh, 1961, and that's actually just to 2001. And the reason, of course, for that is that uh, agriculture is much more productive. It's not productive because some scientific council <clears throat> got together and made up a set of precepts that were then carried out. It's productive because of experimentation. And that's what I've tried to emphasize in the science of liberty is the important aspect of, of science. It's not just that it's rational. Lots of things are rational. It's that science is experimental. And it was agricultural experimentation that brought about uh, these gains. In terms of wealth, well, you know, the world per capita GDP circa 1800 was around $700 a year. Growth rate was under 1%. 2008, it was over 6,000. I think it's roughly 7,000 now, growth, growth rate, uh, not uh, including the recent uh, financial troubles, of around 3%. That's an amazing accomplishment, despite the um, considerable increase in population during that same period. Happiness is hard to measure. One thing I looked at is uh, literacy, because it's clearly, clearly people are better off if they can read or write and feel better off and more in contact with the world and their community. World literacy went from 16, uh, 63% in 1970, up 10% by 1985, and over 80% today. Now, if you were sitting in a coffee house in 1700 in London, let's say on Change Alley, where a lot of the science-minded people would gather, and you were all science aficionados and you were trying to guess what the future might bring, you might have been in, you know, Francis Bacon did this. This was a guy who was smart enough that a lot of people think he was Shakespeare. Um, Francis Bacon saw some of what was coming with science and tried to predict it, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to do. It's hard to make predictions, as Niels Bohr said, especially about the future. Uh, had you said at such a, uh, an assembly that by somewhere around 2,000 or so, 80% of the entire human population would be literate, uh, or that, you know, there would be a country the size of the United States where the median household worth exceeded $100,000. Nobody would have believed that. But here we are. We also have a thing called the United Nations Subjective Well-Being Index, which um, attempts to measure these things. 
And uh, it just includes the interesting fact that uh, people get happier as they get wealthier until around $15,000 a year. And after that, uh, it may solve problems, but doesn't make any happier. <laughs> what to make of that, I don't know. The number of liberal democracies worldwide has gone from something like three in 1800, or zero if you count universal suffrage, to something around 889 today. 46% of all humans are now living in democracies, and it's the stated preference of the rest of the world. The abolition of slavery, which was a major accomplishment, but I'm running out of time. The emancipation of uh, women. Sometime this year, women will become the majority of the American workforce for the first time. And there are lots of interesting achievements like this one. Half of the electricity currently being generated by U.S. nuclear plants comes from decommissioned Soviet warheads, something else that would have been hard to predict in the midst of the Cold War. There are challenges. How am I doing on time here? I'm, I'm okay? Oh, really? Okay, great. Um, there are, however, challenges to this alliance of science and liberalism, quite a few of them, and I'll just mention a few. The one that's often concerned people, of course, is population growth, that uh, there is less hunger even with the growing population, less poverty even with growing population, better education, but population rising curves do threaten to challenge uh, all of these things. Um, Whenever you see a curve in biology start up like this, the, the question is always whether you've got, you're looking at an S-curve, is it going to level out on the other side, or is it an inverted U? Is it going to go up and then crash back down? You see both in biological contexts all the time in various populations. There are an awful lot of those U-curves because a population will often eat its way through a newfound resource, grow very rapidly, and then crash when the resource uh, is depleted. But fortunately, it now appears that the human curve is likely to be an S-curve, at least uh, barring some unforeseen disaster. And the reason is that the rate of increase is now finally uh, rolling over. And the major reason for that is urbanization, the same thing that had that decreased uh, birth rates in Western Europe, the United States, and other parts of the wealthy world, uh, is now taking place worldwide. For the first time, most people now live in cities, and these two curves, if you can't see the legend, are total population in, um, in the bars. The blue line is rural population, and, and in all societies through history, the greatest poverty has been rural. There's a particular cruelty of, of um, intellectual life that at the same time that the poorest and most desperate people have been rural, it has been a propensity of intellectuals who don't do farm work to imagine that their lives were wonderful. So you read in Virgil, for instance, just how great it must be to work on a farm, something Virgil never did a day in his life. And you read in the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was literally a madman and whose, uh, whose achievements include inspiring the terror in the French Revolution. There's also, a, uh, could, we could lay considerable amounts of Nazism at his door. Um, simply made up everything about some primitive state of mankind in which everybody was delightfully happy and uh, depicted our subsequent devolution as uh, one of becoming corrupted by the influences of property ownership and, uh, and civilization. Millions of kids are still taught this stuff every year, um, even though there's not an empirical fact in the, in the lot of it. Whenever people have been free to get out of the country and come to the cities, they have done so. And now that worldwide, the more of them have that freedom, they are doing so. 
The result is the birth rate goes down because people have a lot of kids when they're out in the country because they need the, the farm help. When they move to cities and cramped corner, quarters, they have fewer children. We've all seen pictures like this of slums. They're usually used to depict the disparity of income, which is wrongly thought to be growing worldwide. It's not. It's about the same or decreasing. It's certainly growing in the United States at the moment, uh, which I consider to be an unhealthy situation, but worldwide is not. Um, and we see these sorts of photos. But you could have taken a photo like this of any major European city at the same time. Once people start trying to move in faster than the city can acquire the new influx of folks, there are always these periods of horrible slums, is what Dickens wrote about. This one's in Jakarta. You want to try to do right by it. You want to try to move to what London, say, is today, which is negligible slums and the cleanest air it's had in four centuries and so forth. But each society has to figure out how uh, to, to do this. The main thing about this situation is it is very unlikely to remain static because there's a lot of talent in those, those slums. And that was actually one of the things, you know, when London kept people out, uh, that was when the term suburbs originated. Suburbs meant under the city. It was under the city walls where these shanty towns were built. One of the great forces trying to keep them out were the guilds because they knew there was a lot of talent out there and they didn't want the competition. Ecological stress, I'll just say a word about global warming because we, we seem to be in a weird period on global warming. Fewer Americans today than two years ago uh, accept the science of global warming or that humans have anything to, to do with it. So let me just point out that um, global warming has been identified in a lot of independent scientific studies going back to the 18th century. Uh, the phenomenon is scientifically robust. The mechanism is not difficult uh, to understand. It is not model sensitive. It's not an argument against global warming to say, oh, there's a fault in the model. All models are faulty. Nor do the personalities of the scientists matter. Uh, we've had so much such a flap recently about some mildly inappropriate emails among climate scientists. So let me make a bold statement about this. If the most famous climate scientist in the world were discovered tomorrow via videotape sitting in a meeting with the next five most famous climate scientists all rubbing their hands together and saying, aha, our plan for global domination is proceeding apace. Soon we'll have the world government we all desire. It wouldn't matter. Science doesn't work that way. The personalities, the motives of the scientists don't matter. You just have to look at the data. The data here are not that difficult to understand. <clears throat> there are also, fortunately, some... Uh, Lots of resources to bring to bear on these problems, however we end up doing it. world spends close to $7 trillion on, on energy every year. Uh, U.S. spending on foreign oil alone is half a trillion. Um, so there, there's a lot of, of money in the pipeline, uh, and there's nothing that says once you're able to start addressing housekeeping problems, which is all global warming is, you do have some resources to, uh, to deal with it. The world at large is currently around 15 terawatts, 87% of it from uh, fossil fuels. That means that you can, you, when you've got 87% in any one category, reducing that portion of the total is, is initially is not that hard a challenge. Current costs have been estimated around 1% of global GDP. I know that that's um, a controversial number. We don't really know quite what it is. Uh, the future costs may grow steeply, and there are all sorts of things here. I talk about this in the last chapter of the book. 
the main thing is that global warming, like many scientific projects, is, is just not, ex is not very amenable to absolute statements. You can't just pound the table and say we can't have government interference or we've got to take care of our grandchildren or any of that. You, have, you always end up looking at curves on graphs and trying to find the sweet spot. There's a lot of opportunity for learning in that. There are, however, control issues. Um, a little bit done with global warming early saves a lot of money and trouble. The Titanic, you'll recall, is a mechanically fine ship. Uh, there wasn't anything wrong with it except that it was so big that it was slower to turn than the ships that had preceded it. Its captain didn't quite realize that, was a little slow to apply the initial corrections. Uh, really what he should do was slow down a little so he had more time after seeing an iceberg. Uh, You'll find this on a lot of scientific curves, and global warming is one of them. You do a little bit now, you don't have to do a lot later or face doing uh, a situation in which you don't have enough resources left to deal with the problem. Finally, uh, opponents of science and liberalism alike uh, can be lumped under dogma, including political and religious absolutism. Um, at least half of uh, Islamist terrorism is not, doesn't have anything to do with Islam at all. It comes straight out of, uh, of uh, European fascism and communism. And radical cynicism, such as the uh, postmodernists. I was amused to see that uh, the, uh, my book, the, the Science of Liberty, was attacked on Amazon initially by two postmodernists, neither of whom had ever laid eyes on a copy of the book. Uh, one of the things the postmodernists love to do is tell you that you don't have to read this or that book. That's why it's so they're so popular in college campuses. Uh, because, and this is kind of an old German philosophical tradition, they're only through one, one particular approach can this problem be solved. Uh, only by accepting the, the verdict of so-and-so can we hope to unlock such-and-such. Such. Uh, people have listened to this kind of talk for centuries now. It's kind of mainstream philosophy. I would just say that scientifically you never hear it. If, if you heard, if a scientist were to get up and say, well, we're running this little experiment, and only through our experiment can you ever hope to understand, say, the origin of cosmic rays, uh, he or she'd be laughed out of the, the hall. Uh, so it's, it's funny to see these approaches. Uh, in dogma, you have a theory. You don't bother to experiment. You affirm the theory no matter what happens. Uh, dogma tends to bifurcate the world. Uh, even though, it's, let's say, religious dogma, the religio is Latin for binding together, but you always ultimately end up with some kind of us and some kind of other. Now, science might have ended up bifurcating the world, too. For all, you know, if, there were, if the world were two worlds or if there were two or three kinds of people, as people used to think, science would have found that out. But instead, it found that all humans are the same species. So the, one of the reasons that racism has... Uh, diminished so rapidly in the world is because of because science shown that it had no basis. All earthly life is kin. We're in the same boat, brother. Is a quote from uh, Lead Belly. Um, you rock one end, you're going to rock the other. And it's all one universe. There don't seem to be any walls out there. There's one set of laws applies to everything. So this, the, these inspirations that were at the heart of the founding of uh, liberalism and science. Uh, turn out to be true. They're not just beliefs. Uh, they, they, these, so far as one can tell, are scientific facts. And with that, I will thank you for listening and return to our panel.
Our first commenter uh, this afternoon is uh, the Cato Institute's own Jason Kuznicki. He's a research fellow here at Cato and also uh, managing editor of uh, the Cato web magazine, Cato Unbound. Um, of particular relevance to uh, today's proceedings, uh, he has a, a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins, where in particular he studied uh, uh, the era uh, that was uh, the seedbed of both the scientific and democratic revolutions. And uh, so we look forward to his comments. Everyone, please welcome Jason Kuznick. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start by saying that uh, uh, my own training is in intellectual history, although it is not specifically in the history of science, and I personally am not a scientist, and so uh, some of the some of the material you've just heard, I'm I'm actually a little bit afraid to comment about, in particular global warming, because it's not a subject I I really do much work on, unfortunately. Uh, but I I would like to say a few things about uh, about the book, The Science of Liberty, and uh, about its thesis, about what I think it's trying to do, and why uh, I think that. It's a very important and a very interesting book, and I'd also like to offer a few criticisms of the book because it really wouldn't be fair of me just to get up here and have have nothing but praise, and it would it would make the discussion I think kind of boring if that were if that were the case. So, uh, most of us I think who've heard of Timothy Ferris in the past think of him as primarily a science writer. I know I did. I read The Red Limit when I was in high school, I think, and was very interested in it. I would probably be a little bit embarrassed to see my notes in that book right now, given that I didn't eventually choose science and was uh, perhaps only modestly talented in that area. Uh, But I do think that the new area that uh, Ferris moves into in this book, namely the history of political thought, is one that he seems to master very well. Uh, this is what I ended up spending my formative years on, my, my graduate training on, and I, I think he did a very good job at this. I'm, I'm impressed. I would summarize the central argument of this book as being sort of an elaboration on a claim made by Karl Popper in The Open Society and Its Enemies, namely that the introduction of scientific thought to politics is not what you typically might imagine it to be. We imagine that the introduction of scientific thought into politics will be universal, will be totalizing, will be all-encompassing, will completely remake society. We think of, for example, Isaac Asimov and the Foundation series, which which many of you have, have probably read, in which there is a universal path to history, one which can be discerned by mathematical law. And if science is just discerning enough, it can pick out that path and it can run the world using mathematical formulas. This was a very appealing vision in the 1940s and the 1950s when Asimov was writing this. Uh, But it has not proven to be a workable vision. The societies that have tried it have suffered. And why is that? Karl Popper offers an answer, and I think Timothy Ferris elaborates on it. I'm going to read a quote from the Open Society and its enemies that I think is uh, one of the things that is really a central theme also in Ferris's work. The utopian engineer 
is convinced that we must recast the whole structure of society when we experiment with it. But the kind of experiment from which we can learn the most is the alteration of one social institution at a time. For only in this way can we learn how to fit institutions into the framework of other institutions and how to adjust them so they work according to our intentions. And only in this way can we make mistakes and learn from our mistakes without risking repercussions of a gravity that must endanger the will to future reforms. Furthermore, the utopian method must lead to a dangerous dogmatic attachment to a blueprint for which countless sacrifices have been made. Powerful interests must become linked up with the success of the experiment. All of this does not contribute to the rationality or the scientific value of the experiment. But the piecemeal method permits repeated experiments and continuous readjustments. This, and not the utopian planning or historical prophecy methods, would mean the introduction of scientific method into politics, since the whole secret of scientific method is a readiness to learn from mistakes. Which is to say that scientific government is not totalizing. It's not totalitarian. It's not all-encompassing. It's going to try one thing at a time because that's more consistent with the scientific spirit of experiment. This leaves considerable space for individual initiative and individual human freedom. And for myself as a libertarian, I count this as a good thing. Ferris also argues that this spirit of experiment pervaded the American Revolution and the uh, democratic liberal revolutions that it inspired. And I think he makes a very convincing case here. I think that uh, he is right to notice that many of the American revolutionaries were scientists and that they spoke in scientific terms very frequently when they talked about what they were doing in politics. And conveniently, right on the other side of the Atlantic at approximately the same time, we have another revolution. Uh, This one, however, I think illustrates the other side of what Popper and Ferris were talking about. I mean the French Revolution, which, yes, was inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and which very frequently did take the uh, utopian totalizing approach to politics and did see itself very literally as restarting the calendar at the year one and remaking the entire society that it sought to govern from the ground up. And in fact, this revolution was a disaster. Now, I mentioned that I would offer some criticisms of the thesis of this book, and and I will. It is certainly true that many of the early liberals were scientists. It is certainly true that many of the American founders were scientists. Even if they had never become politically active, we would still remember Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and Thomas Jefferson in the history of science. Historians of science would know these names, even if they had never done anything in politics. But I would say that for any phenomenon in history that is as large and as complex and as enduring as the liberal democratic revolutions of the Enlightenment and the subsequent revolutions that they inspired, for any events uh, or series of events of this complex, you're not going to find one cause. 
Uh, very, very seldom is anything this big and this transformative in history caused by one thing or, or sparked by only one thing. And I, I would suggest that there is another cause at work here as well. Uh, I would suggest, first of all, I begin my suggestion by saying not only were Franklin and Rush and Jefferson all scientists, they were also each in their own way religiously unorthodox. And so were many of the other American founders. And so were many of the early scientists. They were dissenters. They were Unitarians. They were agnostics. They were even occasionally atheists. And so what I would suggest is that there is also a religious aspect to the foundation of the liberal democratic state, specifically a critical religious dimension. Uh, Yes, you do find orthodox religious believers within the liberal democratic camp in the Enlightenment, but you certainly find many people with some very odd religious ideas, to say the least, and with some beliefs that could not easily be squared with orthodoxy. Uh, John Locke certainly wasn't an orthodox believer. Many people have argued about what he really did believe, and I think it's a, a reasonable and open historical question in some respects, but he certainly wasn't an orthodox believer, nor, for that matter, was Isaac Newton. Spinoza, Voltaire, Paine, everywhere you look, everywhere you look, you see religious innovation, uh, religious experiment, new ideas in, in this other area. Now, I, I don't want to say that science is unimportant, and it's, it's always the worst critique of a book to say, well, yeah, but you didn't write about this other subject that I find really, really interesting, and I wish you'd written this other book instead. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I am trying to say here is that I think that in religion, in politics, and in science, in all three of them, at the same time, we have a series of related, in fact, intertwined developments, that all three of them are undergoing a similar process of reevaluation at the same time, led by many of the same people. And, uh, and so there are, uh, in fact, commonalities, not just between science and politics, but science, religion, and politics. And when you add all of those three things up, that's a lot of human society. That's, and that's a general revolution in human society. And so I would, I would leave uh, Professor Ferris with two questions. Uh, first, there is already a name for this general revolution in human society in the 18th century. That is the Enlightenment. Uh, to what extent is your story, in fact, a retelling of the general Enlightenment story leaving some bits out? And second, to what extent do we still live in the Enlightenment today? Uh, do we face the same questions that the 18th century faced, uh, particularly, in your word, uh, uh, regarding dogma and the place of dogma in science and in politics and in religion? Uh, do we, in fact, still live in the very, very, very long 18th century? And uh, uh, what, you know, what are your views on that? I'd, I'd be curious to hear in, in your response what you might have to say about that. We'll give you a few minutes to ponder that as uh, we... Uh, uh, let our uh, final commenter uh, come to the podium, and that is Jonathan Rausch, who is a senior writer and columnist for National Journal, uh, also a correspondent uh, for the Atlantic Monthly, and uh, writer in residence at the Brookings Institution down Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, 
Jonathan is uh, one of the most astute, interesting, and original commentators on the political scene today. Uh, he is the author of several books, uh, including uh, Gay Marriage, uh, Why It's Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, a book uh, most relevant to the current storm and drawing in Washington, Government's End, Why Washington Stopped Working. Uh, doesn't seem to have resumed uh, since uh, you wrote that. Uh, and then most relevant for today's proceedings, his book, Kindly Inquisitors, New Attacks on Free Thought, a book published, by the way, by the Cato Institute. So please, everyone, uh, join me in welcoming Jonathan Rausch. Thank you, Brink. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm here to tell you today, unfortunately, what an annoying book this is. Um, I have admired Timothy Ferris's writing since 1988's Coming of Age in the Milky Way, uh, a marvelous book. It's beautifully written, yet it's scientifically sophisticated. Um, and the author has a particular flair bordering on genius for the pen portrait that brings science to life. And like all professional writers, when it comes to my rivals, my heart is a lump of clay or small dried raisin, and I hold with Gore Vidal. It is not enough for me to succeed. Others must fail. Um, when I saw the ambition of this new book from Timothy Ferris, when Jason said, why don't you look at this? I said, ha ha, this time he falls on his face. Surely he can't write a treatise on science, society, and liberal theory with the same kind of grace and skill and clarity that he's brought to pure scientific topics. I deeply regret to say that he has indeed done exactly that. Uh, one good reason to read this book is for the sheer pleasure of it. It is vivid. Here's a quotation. I could have taken hundreds like this. Sputnik suggested to politicians and pundits alike that the United States, awash in a hedonistic brew of martinis, bikinis, and Cadillacs sporting tail fins larger than slabs of barbecued ribs, was losing out to the stern efficiency of totalitarian technology. Now raise your hand if you think you can write a sentence like that. <laughs> Or how about this? Pithy. Again, I quote, Like the European totalitarians who preceded them, the Islamists preached an ideology of purification through total mobilization, violence, struggle, and death. Who has said it better in a single short sentence? There is another, I think, important reason to read this book, which is its neglected subject. My answer to Jason's challenge is yes, this does tell part of the Enlightenment story, but it tells a part that is too often neglected, and that's important. It tells the part about the profound connection between science and liberalism, always speaking as we do in the confines of these walls of classical liberalism. I think every libertarian in this room knows all about Hayek and Friedman and the connection between capitalism and liberalism, yet virtually no one in this room, I would wager, has read the work of Karl Popper, who ought to be just as widely known and esteemed in libertarian circles, who argued for the deep connection between liberalism, as he called it, the open society, and the scientific method of trial and error. Most people think of science as apolitical, and indeed, in the partisan sense, you know, Republicans and Democrats, it is and it should be. But politics, in the larger sense, of course, is about how we organize society to make large social choices and resolve disputes, preferably peacefully. Science, in that larger sense of political, is fundamentally, indeed, very much a political system. Uh, and it's an important one, and it's a liberal one. Um, 
assuming that the family is a natural system, the greatest social innovation in the entirety of human history, I would argue, is the liberal social system. Its traits are, as Timothy put on the board just now, it's decentralized, depersonalized, rule-based, open-ended, and trial-driven, and it is a method to make social decisions, that is, to resolve conflicts. Now, think about it. What a radical idea this is. Uh, it contravenes every human impulse, which is to be tribalist, uh, personal favoritism is at the core of what, how we ought to resolve disputes, closed-ended, outcome-oriented, authoritarian. Natural societies tend to be all of those things. There are, of course, three great liberal systems. One, of course, is the democratic one, to choose leaders and uh, to order our politics. Another is capitalism, to allocate resources. There is, of course, a deep and profound connection between science and capitalism um, and between capitalism and liberty. And the third, which I think is the greatest, in fact, of the three, is what I called in my book, Kindly Inquisitors. Did I mention I have a book, $10 on Amazon.com? Uh, a nice quantity of paper for your money. Um, liberal science is the most important of the three, but they all arise at about the same time and about the same place among people who often knew and dealt with each other. And that is no coincidence, because I would argue they're all driven by the same fundamental imperative, which has put an end to decades and even centuries of conflict, frequently violent conflict, over creed and power. By replacing individual authorities and personal relationships with decision-making by these vast social networks, liberal social systems, all three of them, not only make much better decisions by mobilizing infinitely more knowledge and talent, they also bring peace by delegitimizing the very concept of a unitary authority over power, over money, or over belief, the subjects of our three great liberal systems. When there is, of course, no head honcho or tribe, no one in charge, when everybody is in the game playing by the same rules, there is less to fight over, less incentive to fight, and therefore a much more peaceful society. We all know that science goes hand in hand with prosperity and technology. Timothy does an excellent job illustrating in his book that science goes hand in hand with freedom. I'd argue, however, that least appreciated and most important of all, science makes peace possible by providing society with an impersonal, nonviolent mechanism to settle disputes over truth. That's Karl Popper, whose great, I think, pithy formulation is, in science, we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. Think about it. In the past, if two people had a profound disagreement over truth, the way they often settled it is one of them lived and one of them died. We don't do it that way anymore. I really fundamentally disagree in a big way with nothing in this book. So like um, Jason, I searched for a way to say something other than just, uh, yeah, what he said. Um, I'll do it by offering three points in the way of what we could think of as, I suppose, friendly amendments, ways in which the case for science as the core of liberalism is, I think, actually even stronger than Timothy Ferris makes out in this book. Um, the first, I suppose this is a disagreement to some extent. I think Timothy defines empiricism too narrowly. He defines it as something that you do in a laboratory that's very scientific. You may have a white coat. You know, you're checking, and you get a clear positive or negative answer. Well, that's physics. 
But in fact, I would argue that empiricism is something much broader than that, and it is simply this, an imperative to check in order to say that what you say is true. There are all kinds of ways of checking, not just Aristotle's two, nor Aristotle's two, plus what goes on in laboratories. There are all kinds of ways that we can resolve disagreements over who is right, including appeals to logic, to the past, to experience. We can use deduction. We can use induction. We can have moral arguments. Even moral statements are checkable. Now, Locke's empiricism, John Locke is the the patron saint of all of us in this, was a moral statement, fundamentally not just an epistemological statement. Locke said legitimacy to say you have knowledge, not just an opinion, is not an individual prerogative. It comes from taking your views, bringing them out to a community of searchers, subjecting them to criticism. That's how we check, public criticism. And only when a view is accepted by the preponderance of critics can you say that it's knowledge. That's what empiricism is. And that leads me to a second friendly amendment, Timothy Ferris's book, Define science more broadly. What we're talking about is not just the hard sciences, though that's obviously the core of the proposition. It is the entire system of truth-seeking by a community of seekers who accept, not just practically, but morally, the necessity of subjecting their claims to criticism and who renounce any special personal authority, whether it comes from themselves or for God or wherever, over the outcome. That includes, of course, not only physics, mathematics, it includes the soft sciences, the humanities, all of which are expected to subject their work to criticism and peer review. It also includes, indeed, what I do for a living, which is journalism. We say a lot of stuff, but we are expected to put it out there and check. One of the great empiricists I know is David Broder, the dean of Washington journalists, who has said, if your mother says she loves you, check it. That's the ethic of journalism. It is fundamentally the same as the ethic of science. Of course, you don't get the crisp results in journalism or history that you do in physics, but the method is the same, and that's what defines the community, the enterprise that defines science, and that leads me to my third friendly amendment, which is understand what it is that we're defending here. It is broader just than people in white lab coats, and it is not just freedom stupid, to paraphrase Bill Clinton. Um, Timothy Ferris is certainly correct that science both depends upon and fosters freedom. But it's important to remember something I never tire of reminding people in this institution, that rules are no less important in this enterprise than rights. Liberal communities are liberal communities because they accept the binding obligation of contract, of election results, and of a culture of criticism and the emergent consensus therefrom. The biggest challenge in the West today, I would argue, to science, liberal science, broadly defined, does not come from those who challenge civil rights at the top with big government clampdowns, you know, the totalitarian stuff or what al-Qaeda wants to do. It comes from the bottom up from people who are challenging the rules, challenging the discipline of the scientific enterprise. That's creationists and Afrocentrists and other minority centrists who want to jam their opinions into the school curricula, for example, on the grounds that knowledge should be determined by a rule of fairness and equal time, not a rule of submit your views to checking and only the survivors get into the textbook. Um, Another big challenge, I think even more important, is from proponents of speech codes and harassment codes, and now especially 
religious advocates of particular protections who want to punish or prescribe criticism if it hurts someone, if it's, quote, words that wound, words that offends, if it gives deep offense to my religion, they want to say you can't criticize that. Liberal science, I would remind us all, I think we too often forget this, is about discipline no less than about freedom. It is understanding that if we want the fruits of this enterprise, we must subject all our beliefs, including our beliefs about the Prophet to Muhammad, about criticism. If we don't do it ourselves, then we must allow other people to do it. Uh, but that's another book. That's more like a book I wrote. Did I mention I wrote a book? Um, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with this book. If you can't tell, it's a marvelous piece of work. I was uh, talking in the green room beforehand with uh, the author's uh, wife uh, about uh, what a bold and unfashionable uh, book uh, this is. <clears throat> that uh, while uh, that this is new territory for Timothy Ferris, he's written in, uh, in the science realm uh, pretty much exclusively beforehand. Uh, and we are in a golden age of popular science writing. Uh, for political writing, not so much. Uh, these days, uh, the political books that, uh, that find the biggest audiences and generate the most attention are dogma books. They are books for us, against them. They are books to stroke the preconceived notions of one tribe or the other, whether it be red or blue, and demonize the other side. Uh, this, however, is a book that has something to offend everybody. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> it's... Uh, too high on science to be completely appealing to conservatives. It's too high on classical liberalism uh, to be too uh, uh, appealing uh, to progressives. Uh, and then that stuff about global warming is sure to drive libertarians crazy. Uh, but uh, And on that point, let me just make the point, although this is I have no expertise on this subject, uh, that, uh, that the controversies of global warming are precisely, as Timothy Ferris mentioned, incapable of resolution by blanket statements one way or the other. Uh, and specifically, to state global warming is happening and human beings have a role in it does not resolve any important public policy question. Those questions must be resolved by further inquiry into the actual dimensions of the problem, the costs that they are going to impose, and on whom they're going to fall and when, uh, and the uh, costs then of various different strategies for remediation or adaptation. Uh, and uh, there is ample ground in that very detailed empirical inquiry uh, for dissents from uh, what have been the major policy initiatives pushed by the people most concerned by global warming. I'll leave it at that uh, and, uh, and ask the author if he wants to comment uh, first on anything the commenter said before turning it over to more questions from the audience. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm having heard so many kind words, I'm hesitant to change a thing. Um, I remember that years ago there was a folk uh, festival in, uh, I think, North Carolina, and um, I think it was Manny Greenhill who was managing Mississippi John Hurt, the great blues man who had disappeared for decades and been rediscovered and then had a whole career in his 60s when young audiences would turn up. He was due to play at this festival, and Manny couldn't find him, so he went out on stage to kind of vamp and keep the crowd going till they could find him. And he was talking about John Hurt, and he said, We're our, our next uh, 
entertainer will be a man of such genius, a great songwriter, great this and that. He keeps looking to the wings, hoping he'll come on. I know you're going to enjoy him. Then he looks down, sitting in the middle of the audience was uh, John Hurt. Oh, there you are, John. Come on up. And afterwards, he said, why did you keep me out there hanging like, you know, when you was... And uh, John said, well, Mr. Greenhill, when I heard you saying all those nice things, it never occurred to me that you were speaking about myself. And, of course, one of the great things about this subject is that um, it isn't it isn't personal. And the Enlightenment, for instance, was such a change in the world that it will be a kaleidoscope that uh, people will be looking at and into and through and reevaluating for as long as we are fortunate enough to have uh, uh, free societies in the world. Um, and I, I think it's quite fair to... Um, to ask the question of just how much do I think I'm changing this, uh, the history of the Enlightenment. And this, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's really not for me to judge. Um, when I was a student, the Enlightenment was always explained by this odd kind of fragmented account in which suddenly several philosophers all started writing stuff. And it was often talked about as being a victory of rationality over superstition. That, I don't think, is good enough. Um, I, so I asked the question, well, what was new here? And the answer was, uh, was science, uh, starting with Galileo and particularly the, with Newton's Principia, which just swept the world. I mean, it was a book that was intentionally written to be hard to understand by someone who was already hard to understand because there was no one nearly as smart in the known world. Um, even John Locke had to get a mathematician friend to explain to him just to he could follow the argument, but he he needed reassurance that it was it was sound um, yet it had a tremendous impact because it showed that science was capable of not just explaining things which all philosophers do but making predictions and I find that that this has still not penetrated very widely uh, to uh, a human. Uh, consciousness. So to answer uh, your second kind question, the, the the extent to which we're still living in the Enlightenment, still facing the same essential questions, I think I think we really we really are. Uh, most of the students I encounter don't know how science works. They've never acquired the habit of in argument of saying to someone, "This is why they're so easily pushed around, and and why they're so easily recruited to hideous campaigns based on belief rather than." than the facts because they haven't learned how to reference back to the to the uh, to the facts and similarly I find that many university students and I know that you know it's easy to to blame I'm not blaming education I'm just saying that as an educator encountering students I find they don't understand science and they don't understand liberalism about 10 years ago one fourth of July I went out to a barbecue and there were a bunch of kids there some of them were still in college some in graduate school Many had finished their educations in the last few years. There was more than a million dollars in fancy tuition on the hoof standing around this barbecue. So I just started asking them what happened on the 4th of July, that we have this Independence Day, and they did not know the answer. So, yeah, we're still, we're still I think, in the, in the midst of it, and the verdict is, is not at all clear. Uh, with that, let me uh, open up uh, the floor to uh, questions. Uh, and uh, when I call on you, please uh, give your name and uh, and make it a question. Um, and a mic will come uh, to amplify your voice. Uh, right down here in front. 
Kendall and Ciencia Press. I wonder, in your scheme, uh, what is the place for scientific theory and scientific theorists? Was Einstein and his ideas, his theories, before they were tested and proven, was he doing science? Should he be acknowledged as a scientist? And let me just mention that this has some, uh, some bearing of a very practical sort, because one of the favorite moves of scientific rejectionists is to say to a theorist, well, we don't like that theory, and so we're not going to fund any tests of that theory. And therefore, the theorists can spend decades in limbo. Yes, which is pretty much what happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, you had brilliant astrophysicists who had to stay really in theory because there weren't any, weren't much in the way of tools to test it. But sure, Einstein was certainly a scientist. Uh, I think there's an interesting element to your question in that it's sort of more popular in history to have a scientist um, who is purely doing theory, and a lot of scientists are pushed that way, because our intellectual history associates great achievement with solitary intellectuals writing great books. And science is typically much more communal. So even when, you know, Einstein offended um, his dean, and so he, he, he couldn't get a job. Every time he would apply for a job, the dean would write a letter of support saying, don't hire him. Same thing happened to John Wheeler, by the way, the nearest thing probably we had to Einstein in the 20th century. So Einstein had to go to work at the patent office, but he still had a lot of friends and scientific friends. He was reading the journals, and he was doing science. Um, yet his seeming estrangement during that brief time really added a lot to the luster of his, his reputation. And there are scientific theories that have a long horizon. String theory has been going on for more than 10 years now. It's very going to be very difficult to test experimentally, and it's certainly been criticized on the uh, that if you couldn't ever find an experiment, what's the point of it? It's at least half mathematics. To me, it is all science, uh, and the experimental side perhaps isn't as much appreciated by the public as the theoretical side is. The science is as much about looking for a way to check as it is about hatching the theory. Um, to me, the greatest of all philosophers of science is a man named Charles Sanders Peirce, an American philosopher of the 19th century, who years ahead of his time was the first to understand that science is a fundamentally communitarian enterprise. You can't do it in a room by yourself. If Einstein locked up in there, no one knew what he was doing. The science begins when other people begin looking at it, criticizing it, checking it, not just empirically by looking at things with telescopes, but checking the math, thinking it through. That's the distinguishing characteristic of science, plus the willingness of the members of the community to abide by the results, which is the part a lot of the rejectionists don't like. Right down here in the corner. Then you get you next. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. Uh, I operate under the pseudonym of Urban Revival Media uh, on YouTube, which is one of my... Uh, um, addictions, I think. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question about the, the, the big picture and life on, uh, beyond Earth. If I'm sure you've been asked this question probably from a philosophical standpoint as well as a pure science standpoint. Will we find intelligent life on other planets in our lifetime and what form will it be and how will it look and 
will have a drive-in or <laughs> those other things. And the second question is, have you thought about taking your, your uh, uh, presentation skills to another level in terms of, say, producing a uh, video online or uh, Discovery Channel uh, segments or going to a more omnipotent uh, approach to a media? Thank you. Uh, um, well, of course, whether intelligent life will be discovered in our lifetime is uh, hopefully a different question for you than for me, because you're less than half my age. Um, I don't know. The The big question, life is probably commonplace in the universe. There's nothing, there are no unusual events in the history of the Earth that would make you think, ah, this was a real accident. Uh, life got started real early in the history of the Earth, and there are got to be a lot of planets that are roughly comparable to the Earth out there. Intelligence, we don't know, because intelligence, if we define it as the ability to, you know, build a radio telescope and listen to other, for other species, uh, has only been around here on Earth for something on the order of a century. So we don't, we hope it'll last a long time, but we don't know. If intelligence typically lasts a short time, then you can have lots of intelligent societies, but they all find that they're alone because they're, they're alone in time. So the the great issue is time rather than, than space. And thank you for your invitation about new media. Um, I wish I knew more about it, but I, I'm still I am trying to learn how to go from the kind of dinosauric, two million dollars an hour uh, level of filmmaking to uh, to the 21st century methods. Ed. Yeah, Ed Hudgens from the Atlas Society. Brink, first of all, thanks for an excellent uh, panel, and thank you for your work going back several decades uh, uh, on everything from science to now your book. Um, I'm glad you're showing the relationship between the scientific revolution and what you call the liberal revolution. I think that's quite correct. I think your work really complements people like Michael Shermer, who, for example, is trying to show the secular, emerging secular uh, market, you might say, the importance of the free market. What I want you to ask you to address a little bit more, especially given that we have a marketplace for ideas, is the problem of dogma. Uh, we see in the United States today, for example, with our market for ideas, uh, the, uh, per, the, the prevalence of creationism, unfortunately, still. We see traditional religion replaced by cults, Scientology, things like that. We still see, unfortunately, in universities, postmodernism kind of hanging around. And it seems like dogmatism is undermining the core of the Enlightenment enterprise, and that is the importance of reason uh, as an approach to your life personally as well as understanding uh, the world, that, uh, that, that, this, uh, that a rational life is treated more like a lifestyle choice uh, that can be, you can take or leave uh, rather than the, the core of our civilization. It seems that that really is endangering freedom in this country, and I'd like you to maybe address a little bit more how you see the problem, especially given that we do have a marketplace of ideas uh, today. It is a problem. There's a scathing chapter in my book about postmodernism, and um, my editor wondered, um, you know, aren't these culture wars over? Um, which is a reasonable question, because they're over for, you know, people like us, maybe, but uh, they have an ongoing life in education, particularly because of schools of education. Um, there's a vague sense that postmodernism represents some kind of new achievement in scholarship. And in schools of education, this is often taught, so we have, we've graduated a lot of teachers who 
you know, haven't had that much time to pay close attention to, say, English literature or anything like that. It might not be their field. But who suffer from the vague notion that there's some that this postmodernism somehow has changed the rules, and what they specifically know is that you're supposed to you're supposed to be careful about what kind of words you use. You know that you've got to be PC, and you shouldn't ever say that anybody really knows anything. That you want to be careful not to assert that there are any facts, because. These so-called facts are just from your perspective as a particular ethnic uh, group and that if you moved over to some other group, there would be a different set of equally valid facts. Um, and I, I just think that this is pernicious nonsense. Um, and, and, and it's funny that it's considered offensive to say so. And if you do say so or if you read a page from my book uh, uh, in many such conclaves, I'll immediately be dismissed as a political conservative, which is a bad word there. Uh, as it happens, I'm not a political conservative. I am interested in facts, however. And I do think that the, 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 the important thing is to, is to call dogma by, it, by that name. There are a lot of intimidating tricks that are used by people to sell dogma. They're kind of guilt trip students. Um, and the one that really they should all be called on is that they all claim that they are benefiting some underprivileged group of people. There's a single question. I would suggest that students, as they're walking down through the gauntlet of all these tables that are set up to fight for this or that cause, some of them much more valid than others, of course, uh, is what good has this done anybody? What has it ever accomplished Tell me one thing. I've had dinner the other night with two anthropologists uh, who were both, uh, both uh, fond of the works of Bruno Latour, a, a deconstructionist, a French sociologist, anthropologist, and a lot of other words, uh, who will tell you, who's devoted a lot of work to undermining science. Um, what, what good is it? What, there must be something, some one thing that Mr. Latour has ever said or done that has helped? Well, they didn't know the answer. Um, and until you know the answer, then you're, you're not in a realm of uh, beyond the confines of dogma, and that should be called as much. Right down here. Oh, to Aberdeen, uh, my question is to Jonathan. It's nice to see you again. Uh, Jonathan, you talked about two notions, checking and criticism. How do you make society make these notions commonplace, acceptable? Uh, we certainly have, which is the main thing. You teach an ethic of criticism and checking. You protect it legally, which is what the First Amendment is all about. Um, as uh, Timothy points out in his book, the same people who framed the Constitution were of a very scientific term of frame of mind. Um, they understood the connection. And then you defend it. You remember, as I said, that there are rights as well as rules. It turns out, you know, to me, the big surprise of science is that it's a sustainable enterprise. Before any of this happened, if you had come along and said, you know what, let's take the decisions about the things we think are most important, the nature of the universe, God, um, the ordering of society, um, 
what's true and what's false. And let's turn those into an impersonal over, turn those over to an impersonal public machine. It will make the decisions. It will debunk any priest, any philosopher, any dogmatist who claims authority to settle these disputes. I would have said that might work in a very small society for about 10 years. Astonishingly, it turns out to be far more robust than the alternatives, but it does depend. This goes back to John Adams, right? A republic has to be based on some internalization of republican virtue. The same is true of science, some internalization of a belief that we have an obligation to submit ourselves and our views to the discipline of checking, of empiricism, of criticism. Um, we turn out to be very good at that, but I, I don't take it for granted, which is one reason I wrote Kindly Inquisitors and which is one reason I'm very glad Timothy Ferris has written this book. I think with that, we're, we'll adjourn and uh, head upstairs for uh, sandwiches. Books are available for sale. I'm sure uh, Mr. Ferris would be happy to sign them for you. Uh, everyone, thank you for coming.